Testament, Philippians. It's on page 1178. And I should have the words I can put up here that we're going to look at. We're going to look at this whole idea of praying with joy. Now, we are going to be baptizing uh, Jonathan Allen, and one of the things that the congregation will do is promise to love and care for Jonathan. And how we do that, one of the things is prayer. And I want to say just some things uh, about prayer. And there's a, an interview that I've cited several times, and some of you might be a bit fed up of it, that Jeremy Paxman does with Russell Brand. And, but I just find it just one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever seen in my life. Because most of you associate Russell Brand with being a bit of an idiot and Saxgate and all that kind of stuff. And yet, he's a remarkably articulate and intelligent person, if somewhat hyper. And um, I have a lot of empathy with him in many ways. And he's asked about life in general, and he just says that he's fed up of the fame and the celebrity. It's like ashes in his mouth and so on. And he's looking for something else. And Paxman says, do you know what that is? And he says, yes, I have some idea that it's not the consumerism and so on. And then he uses these words. He says, why do we chase after the shadow on the wall when we could have the source of light itself? Someone has said that all desire within us, desire for other things, is really a substitute form for desire after God. And Paxman says to Russell Brand, do you believe in God? And Russell Brand says, yes. And Paxton goes, I'm shocked. Do you go to church? I pray and I meditate. And then he waffles on a whole lot of rubbish. But um, it's, you know, it, it, was just, it was just amazing. I pray and I meditate. Now, it's really interesting that there are an awful lot of people who, if you said, would you like to go to church? They'd go, no, it's like you've asked them to do something really, really bad. But you say, will I, will I pray for you or do you pray? A lot of, an awful lot of people say that they pray. And I'm intrigued by that. I'm wondering whether they do really pray, whether it's just often just wishful thinking, whether it's just talking to themselves, and so on. <clears throat> but here, we're told something about prayer that's a real privilege for the Christian. There are a lot of stuff that's going on in this church. There's a lot of stuff that's going on in this city. There's a lot of stuff that's going on in your life. There's good, bad, ugly, and indifferent. And sometimes, it's just so overwhelming. And we get driven to prayer. Now, that is a strange thing because prayer should be something, not just that we do out of desperation, but it's something that we should do with joy. So I asked several questions, and then I'm just going to go through this fairly quickly. And um, hopefully, this is God's word. It is God's word, and hopefully it will, it will challenge you and provoke you, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. I just wonder if you've ever sent anyone a thank you note. It's a really, really good idea when people send you presents to send a thank you note. I wonder if any of you have a chip on your shoulder. You've got any unresolved conflicts that are just simmering away that you've never really dealt with. I wonder how you're getting on in this church or whatever church you belong to, or maybe you don't belong to a church, but you're getting on in your work and so on. I wonder if you could answer the question, What's God got to do with me anyway? Or even what is what we call the gospel, the good news? Well, as we look at these words, Paul has, you'll see them up on the screen. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all, of my, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I want to say, first of all, that we pray with joy. Now, again, I just want to define the term. What do we mean by joy? Pleasure comes to us usually from things through our senses. Good music, good food. Happiness comes to us through events. Uh, It was a happy event yesterday at uh, Jenny Boyd's wedding, and I just realized, did I, where's, is Becky here? No, just because I I was thinking, oh, wait a minute, did I give her the wrong second name? She's married to Craig anyway. I always think of her as Jenny Boyd. But um, for me, that was just, it was just a wonderful, happy occasion. But the trouble with pleasures and happiness is they disappear. The only pleasures and happiness that last are those that come through joy. God coming to us through Jesus Christ, through the Spirit. It's not just a passing mood determined by our senses or by our events, but something deep within a deep conviction about the way things are, an inner exhilaration over what God has done for us and in us and in others. You know, the blind poet, hymn writer, George Matheson, writing after the most extraordinary pain and tragedy in his own life, he talked, I wrote a song called, O Love That Wilt Not Let Me Go. And one verse of that is, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. There is a joy that we get through pain. How is it possible for people to go through so much bad stuff and still be joyful? That that doesn't work in our culture. In our culture, the view is you've got to avoid pain so that you can be happy. And the whole of our society is based upon a kind of utilitarian idea that it's the maximum amount of painless free existence for the maximum amount of people that brings the greatest good. But what if it doesn't? What if that's not how it works? What if sometimes your avoidance of pain keeps us away from real joy. Paul comes to this group of Christians, and he thanks God for them. He prays for them always. There was a particularly happy relationship between the pastor and the congregation. There's pain and there's problems. You read this letter, it's full of pain. It's full of problems. Paul's in jail in Rome, for example, and he's writing to a church where there are people who are fighting amongst themselves, and it breaks his heart that that is happening. And yet, he still speaks of praying with joy for all of them, even the ones who are causing him pain. There was a big tendency in this church towards disunity, but he begins first with praying with joy because of the, what he calls the fellowship, the koinonia is the word that's used in the gospel, the intimacy, the communion. It's not just Christians enjoying one another's company. Fellowship, as you know, is not just meeting together on a Sunday. It's not just having a cup of tea after the church service. Fellowship is intimacy and communion, working together in the cause of the gospel and giving together. Now, I want to say to those of us who are Christians, it is so important that we get this 
because our default tendency is to always to reboot in our lives towards ourselves so that the church becomes about us. And it's a particular danger, obviously, for someone like me, for this is my work as well. But the church becomes about us, and it's what we feel and what we think and what we want. But that's not fellowship. You don't get fellowship with that because people can't share that. Certainly, people can share with some of the things that you want for a while. But fellowship is when you focus on Christ and when you work together for the sake of the gospel. I think sometimes you and I need to ask why our experience of real fellowship, real depth, and real intimacy is so limited. It's probably because we're not partnering with anyone in the gospel. This is a real fellowship. There's a reality in this. We often think of fellowship as spiritual. We had sweet fellowship together. What does that mean? Well, it is spiritual, but not as over against the material. Paul says in Romans 15, 26, Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. It's fellowship to give. (coughs) 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. You see, the way that we do things like fundraising, we say, well, let's go to a rich church or let's go to rich people. And Paul says, here's a church that had extreme poverty and yet also extreme generosity. That is fellowship. In chapter 4 and verse 14 of Philippians, the same word is used, koinonia. It was good of you to share in my troubles. It was good of you to have fellowship in my troubles. You don't really have fellowship with someone until you share in their troubles. Fellowship is not about being happy. It can include that, but it's about sharing, and that includes sharing in people's troubles. It includes caring what actually happens to people. It includes weeping with those who weep. In verse 25, Paul says of chapter 2, I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphrodites, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Same thing. He's talking about fellowship. The fellowship is practical. It's real. It's part of the fellowship of the gospel. I was praying for someone I I never knew, or praying for a family, I don't know. Tina Morrison, uh, um, because there are people in the congregation here who uh, knew and loved Tina and her family. How do I pray for somebody? I don't know. Because there's a fellowship that is in the gospel. And here's the interesting thing. If people think that by you becoming a Christian... It takes away all your pain and it takes away all your sorrow. They haven't grasped what it is to be a Christian because by becoming a Christian, you share in other people's pain and other people's sorrow. And it may accentuate yours. It's a fellowship that's very, very deep. It's a gospel-centered fellowship. It's a commitment to Christ, but a commitment that is expressed to his people. Matthew 25, that's uh, the parable. I'm not going to read it all, but it's the parable 
of um, Jesus on the day of judgment, saying, well, you're welcome because you, you fed the poor and you visited those in prison. And people say, well, when did we do that? When you did it for me, when you did it for my people. That's what fellowship really is. That's why when you work together, when you do stuff, for example, with Bethany, that's why when, you're, when you visit the sick, it's not about any kind of patronizing thing where you're this person who's got these things that you're giving to people. It's not charity in the sense that we understand charity. It's charity in the sense that the Bible describes, which is love, where no one is superior, no one is patronizing. It's just you're sharing together in one another's joys and in one another's pains. And it's constant, says Paul. You have this partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. And I just simply ask every single person here to think about this, and please, if you are a Christian, to pray about this as regards your connection in this church. Do you really think that this is a, a, a partnership in the gospel and that you're part of it? This is not a charity in that sense. This is not about some people giving and other people receiving. It's about everybody, rich or poor, broken or whole. All of us are broken in some ways. All of us are poor in some ways as well. But how we perceive ourselves, that's not the issue. The issue is that we all have something to contribute and we all can truly share in fellowship. So in terms of prayer, that's partnership in the gospel. Prayer is not just a list of requests that we have, but it's entering into each other's situations, needs, triumphs, and failures. It can drain us emotionally, but it, it can also energize us. So with this young man sitting or lying almost asleep, if I don't shout too much, at the front. Um, I mean, it's cute, isn't it? Babies are cute. There's babies everywhere. I was going to say there's babies popping out everywhere, but that's probably the wrong expression. But there's babies everywhere. And, you know, in this church anyway. And babies are cute, and, you know, it's nice to see them and things like that. And yes, we'll pray, and we say that we will. But real prayer is a partnership. We enter into a partnership with Tim and Bev in bringing up Jonathan. Why? Because it's really tough to bring up kids. Because there's things like sickness, because there's all the problems and difficulties that there are in this world, and we agree to partner. And that means when uh, a child is sick that we pray, it means practical things that, in a sense, we are the extended family. We don't normally in this church have a thing like godfathers and godmothers, except you all are. You're all mothers in the church. You're all fathers in the church. And um, poor Jonathan might be horrified at the thought of having so many dads and mums. But actually, it's a really, really good thing. But you see, it's not easy. Because when things don't go well, you don't just drop them. You don't. It means you have to go through the pain and you have to go through the hurt as well. So there's that praying with joy. There's a, there's a joy that we have at, at, at the child being born. There's a joy that we have with all the that goes on. There's a joy that we have in the gospel, even in the midst of conflict and difficulty. And then verse 6, we pray, <coughs> sorry, with confidence, where he says this, being com I pray being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. I meet people who say, well, I used to pray, but then God didn't answer my prayers. Things went wrong. You haven't understood what prayer is. What if things do go wrong? What if there's trouble in the church? What if there's illness? 
What if the devil attacks? What if I can't keep it up? What if it was just my will, my decision at one particular point about becoming a Christian or about anything else? The trouble is, you see, that with my will, it blows hot and it blows cold. It's unstable. It offers no ultimate security. But Paul says, I am really confident of this. And he says, I'm confident that you will continue. Why? Not because of their ability and not because of their record, but because of God's love and because of God's work. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. I am extremely confident about the future of Jonathan. Why? Have I had a prophecy about how long he's going to live and who he's going to marry and how much money he's going to... Not a Not a thing. Not a thing. But I'm confident, not because of his wonderful parents, not because of the country he's brought up in, not because of all the things that we have, but I'm confident because of Jesus Christ. Because it's God who works. I'm confident as a Christian. Sometimes as a Christian, I don't see things. I don't understand. I don't grasp things. And it looks as though everything's rotten and everything's awful. And when people talk about the love of God and the beauty of Jesus and all that stuff, it's just religious jargon. Because you don't get it. But I still remain absolutely confident. And why is that? It's absolutely not in my own ability or character or anything like that. Or in the church or in wider groups or whatever. It's just simply I'm confident that he who began a good work will continue it. In this particular church, there was a woman called Lydia who'd gone down to a river where um, a group of women met to pray, and she'd heard Paul, and the Lord opened her heart. In this particular church, there was a jailer who had locked up Paul, and after an extraordinary event, an earthquake and so on, he became a Christian, he and his whole family. And Paul writes to these people, And he says, I'm confident that he who opened Lydia's heart and that he who caused the earthquake to come to provoke the jailer, if you like, that God began this work, he will continue it. It's the Lord who begins the work. And you know that saying, all's well that ends well? No. The Christian version of that is all's well that begins well. That's the important thing. It should be a source of joy and confidence for us that our salvation begins and ends with God. The Lord will complete his work. John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress describes how Christians sees water being poured on the fire and he fears that the work of grace would be extinguished by the devil. But the flames grow higher and higher and and Bunyan describes how Christian doesn't understand this. How come the devil assaults us in so many ways and oppresses us and discourages us, and yet the flames of faith grow higher and higher? And so Christian is taken to the back of the fire where there's a man with a jar of oil secretly adding oil to the fire. This is Christ, says Bunyan, who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart. That's why we pray with confidence. Not because we think we know what the answer is going to be. Not because we have confidence in ourselves, Not because we have confidence in anyone else. But confidence in God. And part of that is also this. We have a confidence that God knows what he's doing. And he has a long-term plan. There's a, 
a bitter attack on the church just now from militant atheists and secularists, but there's another one from within the church which undermines our confidence in God. And I'll tell you what it is. It's called open theism, and it's the view that God doesn't know the future, that God can't know the future, and in some senses, that God, there's not much that God can do about the future. If that were true, I would close this book and I would walk out of this building because I couldn't cope. I, I, well, if God doesn't know the future, if God, you, you, you are absolutely kidding me. I'm confident because God has a long-term plan. I don't know what that plan is in detail. I know it's carried on in the light of Christ's return. I know that God has promised, and I know this, that God can no more cause me to lose my salvation than He can break His pledged word to glorify His Son. And so, <coughs> 2 Corinthians 5, 9, there's loads of verses like this, but we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Paul says he is absolutely certain, absolutely confident, that God begins a work, and that there is an end process, and that God has a plan. There's an idea here of completion, putting the finishing touches to. I really think that the best thing that could ever happen to any of you, if I have a bad relationship with any of you, you know the best thing that could happen is not me justifying myself, but just asking you to get some decent theology. And I'll tell you why. Because decent theology says, well, if I look at one of you and think, oh, that person's horrible or they've not done, decent theology says, you're right. You're right, but I'm not finished with them yet. God is working on us. We live in this kind of illusory world where we think, well, if someone says they're a Christian, they're my brother and sister, and everything's hunky-dory and everything's happy. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's like Michelangelo looking at a block of marble and seeing an angel and taking years, years to perfect that angel. God looks at us and he's not finished with us. And Paul writes to this church in Philippi, and he writes from a situation where he's in prison and where people are preaching the gospel so that he will get in more trouble. And he writes to a church where two women are fighting about something relatively trivial. And he just must be so distressed. And yet he writes and he prays with joy and he prays with confidence because he says, I know things are a mess, but God's not finished yet. And what God has begun, God will finish. God never gives up. That is the most wonderful thing. Sometimes those of you perhaps are not yet Christians or if you are a Christian, you're very unsure about so many things and what you have is this kind of, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can keep it up. I don't know if I can make it. You can't. That's the point. You can't. That's what I mean about get some good theology. You can't. But God can and God does and God will. I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day, the day of judgment. He's gonna, he, he'll get me there. That's the confidence you have in prayer. So you pray not because you've had a vision or a revelation. Lord, uh, give me this because I've got enough faith for it. Lord, bless this child because I'm going to have enough faith. I'm just going to have faith. I'm just going to have faith. You pray with confidence because of the one whom you are praying to. Last thing. Praying with love. 
verses 7 and 8. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Churches are always the same. Human beings are always the same. Gossip, tittle-tattle, rumor, hurt, anger, bitterness, innuendo, everything. Paul says, look, my witness is God. I long for all of you. All of you. I long for all of you. And so I pray with love. D.L. Moody um, not, wouldn't endorse all of his theology, but he had some great quotes, and I love this one. He said, there are two ways of being united, frozen together and melted together. And I just love that. You just think about that. I mean, sometimes Scottish Presbyterians, Calvinists, get called the frozen chosen. Um, that's, that's not a bad description sometimes. We can be frozen together or melted together. We should not be frozen together by formalism and ritualism, but we should be melted together by the Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus Christ. Paul, who has this reputation as being this incredibly rational, intellectual, deep thinker, when you actually read what he says, he is incredibly emotional because the two things are not necessarily opposite. He says he is bound to the Philippians in the love of Jesus Christ. And so when he thinks of them, he thinks of them in his heart. You know, it almost sounds like that kind of really twee, you know, teenage romance thing that you're a teenage boy and you first fall in love and every time you think of the girl or you see a picture of her or whatever, your, your heart goes beep and, you know, you've got this warm glow inside and so on. I say, well, we don't do that anymore. Paul really says, when I pray for you, I have you in my heart. I really, really do care for you. Where do you get this fellowship from? Lydia, the wealthy foreign businesswoman, the slave girl in Philippi who lived in the gutter, and the jailer who was going to commit suicide. How could they have fellowship together? Because it's love whatever the circumstances. It's love in the partnership of the gospel. What does that mean? What is this gospel that he talks about? It's the public announcement of what God has done through Jesus. It's the good news of the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus. It's the unanimity of doctrine which brings true fellowship. Without it, there can be none. You cannot have fellowship in a church where you've got someone who says, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God, or I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead, or I'm a Christian, but I don't think the Bible is true. How do you have fellowship? You don't. Paul's suffering for the gospel. He's defending and confirming the gospel. The word is apologia, a verbal reason defense. That's what he's doing. He's disarming prejudice and overcoming objections to the truth. To an extent, that's what we're going to try and do at Quench tomorrow night. And Paul says, you're with me in this. We're together in this. Whether I'm locked up in prison, whether I'm confirming and affirming, defending the gospel, we all do this together. And that fellowship comes through shared experiences. We rejoice that we share in God's grace, a joint participation in the grace of God. Here's another radical thought for any single one of you. If you're a Christian, you do not share in the grace of God alone. If you keep thinking and talking about what do I get, what do I feel, there is nothing that you get, there is nothing that you feel, there is nothing that you're taught, there is nothing that you're blessed with that's alone, that you do it alone. And there is nothing that you suffer 
that you do it alone. Oh, sometimes you feel it, don't you? You feel, I'm on my own, I'm alone, I'm... No, you're not. You're not. Because you have Christian brothers and sisters. Love for the gospel always leads to love for people, and especially for his own people. Therefore, he talks about love, and uh, it's a word that he uses, which it's called, the, the word is splash on, um, which is, it's spleen, it's guts. I say, you've got guts, and it just means you've got love. Not how we would use, we've got guts means you're know, kind of strong and courageous. Here, it, it, it's more than that. It, it's this idea of love. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, and patience. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? You pray with love. And it's not that you pray for somebody and then you forget it. You pray for them, and because you love them, you have to act. I love Sam Gordon's quote, there's a vast difference between sticking your nose in other people's business and putting your heart into their problems. The person who comes says, tell me what's wrong, because you just really like a good juicy bit of gossip. We all like that. And the person who says, how can I help? How can I share? How can I have fellowship? I think the Philippians are a great example to us with all their problems, their hard work, their sharing, and sacrifice for the gospel. I think, and I I confess this myself, that sometimes our love for God's people is so fickle and inconstant, but they kept going. Despite opposition and hardship, they continued to share in the gospel. It's so hard in our culture to to grasp this and to get this, because we live in such an individualistic culture. And we need to understand that and, and to realize what it is. Being a Christian does mean being committed to the people of God. Let me finish this by just <coughs> saying how real this is. Paul prays to my God. It's a clo- the prayer is a close personal relationship. To become a Christian is to pass from death to life. And prayer really is the test of our faith. Uh, this is from uh, Milton. For neither man nor angel can discern hypocrisy, the only evil that walks invisible except to God alone. Who's a hypocrite? Which of you is a hypocrite? I don't know. You don't know if I'm a hypocrite. To some extent, we can all say there's an element of hypocrisy in us. But the reality of our faith is found surely in the answer to this question. Do we pray and have fellowship with others in the gospel. Praying always for all of them, not a select few. I think it's a real challenge to us here because I do believe that it's our major, major, major weakness. It's my major weakness and the churches as a whole. The prayer notes have just been produced there. Do you take them? Do you use them? You say, oh, well, I'll just pray for people whenever. No, you won't. What that means is you'll pray when they're on your mind but the trouble is your mind is filled with a lot of other things. The prayer notes are really, really helpful with that. Do you spend time in prayer praying for all the people in the church here? Do you know the people? Every time they come into his mind, Paul says, he offers thanks to God for them. Perhaps now is the time for you and I to develop the habit and take the time to thank God for people and then to thank them. 
prayer meetings, the fellowship groups, and so on. I heard of one fellowship group this week. Uh, somebody said to me, oh, the prayer time was fantastic. That, you have no idea how that lifts people when you pray and share together, even when it's a prayer that's coming from a burdened heart. And it's not just a kind of superficial thing. I had a great request this week. It was just a great idea, and, and I thought, how come I didn't think of that? It's so obvious. But uh, sometimes after a service, we've been looking at some, some things that are quite hard, and this person wrote to me and said, why don't we have opportunity for prayer afterwards, maybe through in one of the rooms that people can go through and pray? I think it's a great idea, and I think, uh, I hope that we'll, we'll do that. We'll set up maybe a two or three people who will just pray after every service, and you can go through and pray with them and share things. We need intercessors, and we need this attitude in prayer of thankfulness. I love these two quotes, one from Shakespeare, O Lord that lends me life, lend me a heart replete with thankfulness. Robert Louis Stevenson, the great Scots writer, the man who has forgotten to be thankful is the man who has fallen asleep in life. We're not often thankful people, are we? I've, I've got so many moans. And, oh, Lord, I'm so miserable with this. And all oh, this, why did this happen to me? And I think the most common thing is, why me? Why me? Why me? And the Christian attitude is, open your eyes and see that he who is for you is greater than he who is against you. See that the numbers that are on your side are far, far greater. And just be so thankful for all that God has given. See what Jesus has done for you. See Christ in His people and make other people joyful that they are Christians together with you. You know, sometimes you're with Christians and you think, oh Lord, why did you make me a Christian with this lot? And then you have to get a bit of humility and realize that they're probably thinking, oh Lord, why did you make me a Christian with him or her? We should rejoice in one another. We should have the affection of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, that will not come unless we pray with joy for one another. Now, obviously, it's a word primarily addressed to those of us who are Christians. But if you're not a Christian, you know, it's possible to have that. It's possible to know God. It is possible to have that kind of scary but real relationship with Him and with His people. In fact, that's why Jesus came to give us that relationship. That is the whole purpose of it. And it's my prayer that you and I will all know that. I'm going to ask Stephen Allen if he'll come up and pray for us. Let's pray together. Lord God, what challenging words we've We've heard preached this morning. We thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul. We thank you that you inspired him under your spirit. And Lord, that you have given us your word. And that we can understand the words that are spoken or written. And Lord, sometimes we can understand them at an intellectual level. But sometimes we don't understand them at a heartfelt, emotional level. And Lord, we do pray that as we hear your word preached every week that we would seek your Holy Spirit to apply the things that we hear to our hearts. We're very conscious, Lord, of, of many feelings. We're conscious 
of letting others down and letting you down. And Lord, we do come before you this morning seeking your forgiveness. And we just pray, Lord, that we'd be very aware of the presence of Jesus Christ with us this morning as we, as we worship you. So Lord, we, we pray for Jonathan this morning as he's um, baptized here. And we pray for Bev and Tim as well. We thank you for them as a family. And we just pray for Jonathan in, in the years to come that you would watch over him, that you protect him, that we would see our part in his future as well as a congregation here. We pray that we would love him. We would pray that we would have the affection of Christ Jesus for him and for others here in the congregation. Forgive us when we don't feel that way. Forgive us when we can confess that we don't have the confession of Christ Jesus for others. And we just pray, Lord, that we would apply the things that we heard this morning to our, to our own hearts and lives. We remember Robert and Linda and Sarah again as they leave this week. We pray for them tomorrow as they pack their belongings into a, a lorry. And for all the practical issues surrounding that, we just pray that you would give them the strength physically and the sleep to deal with, to deal with the big move back to the States. We pray that you'd um, supply for them emotionally and spiritually as well. It's a difficult move for them again to reacclimatize back to the culture and back to the temperature and all the other things that they have to face when they go back. Be with Robert as he seeks work. I pray that you would supply for him in that way. Be with Sarah as she gives birth soon. And again, we do pray for the protection of the unborn child. Be with Linda as well as they set up home uh, back in the States. Go, go, go before them in everything that they do and may they be very conscious of of your presence with them. Lord, we again pray for Annabel's brother, Aldi, and Inverness. We just pray that you would continue to be near to him. Be with him when he's afraid and when he's fearful. Be with him when he's conscious of sin. And Lord, we just thank you that he now knows you as Lord and Savior. And we just pray that you would bless him in his life in these days, in these difficult days for him. We pray for the care of, of him as well. And we just pray that you would be with her, the carers, be with David and Annabel as well as they, as they visit and grant them the words to speak and the encouragement uh, for him at this difficult time. So we just pray for, for blessing on him. We pray for those, again, who are, who are pregnant with us and um, we give thanks for um, Francis and Ben's baby being born this week and for Jonathan and other Jonathan. We just pray that you would bless them as a family and, Lord, that you would encourage them and that they may be thankful to, to you for this young, young life in their family. Lord, we remember Elspeth and Ramon as well, and we pray for um, the unborn life there as well. And we just pray again that you protect them and, and watch over them. We thank you for Anne moving into the flat yesterday um, next to the church here. We thank you for the fact that the flat's right next to the church here. And we just pray for Anne as she, as she makes that, that place home. And we just pray that you be with her in her health and um, be with her as she, as she witnesses and she speaks to the others in the, in the flats uh, next to her. And we just pray that you'd bless and guide her. We again pray for Tina Morrison's family and, and the, the grieving and the bereavement of, of her death. We, just, we do pray that they would um, know the reality of, of Jesus Christ in their lives. And uh, Lord, that they would know your love that they would know you're comforting at a difficult time. We thank you that you are a God who, who knows what it is to suffer. You're a God who knows what it is to have pain and to, 
to have discomfort. And Lord, we just pray that you would be, be near to them at this difficult time. So Lord, I pray that you would go before us as a congregation, be with us in all the financial needs that we have. We're very conscious of the, the difficulties we have financially and all the things we need to pay back for, for this great building that you've given us. We just pray that you'd provide for us financially and that you'd be with us as we, as we minister your word, that this place truly would be uh, the means to an extension of your kingdom. And uh, we just pray that you would bless us in everything that we do uh, for your name. We pray for these things in your, in your precious name. We pray these things. Amen.